I'm Father Mitch Paquin, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And tonight, we'll be reminded of how much trouble we can quickly get into. Wait a minute, is this my life? No, <laughs> how much trouble everybody can get into when we rely only on our own private interpretation of sacred scripture, apart from the sacred tradition of the apostles and the magisterium of the church. And we'll take a look at how persisting in the errors of Bible alone doctrine has wrecked havoc on Christian communities and secular society. Before we get to that topic, we want to discuss briefly with EWTN's Jim Pinto about how you can be involved with EWTN in spreading the gospel. Jim, Father what you Mitch, got for us? Always wonderful to be with you, to be Thank with the you. EWTN family, especially during this holy season of Lent. And you know, we just can't get out of our minds that Ash Wednesday liturgy. Remember that you're dust, and to dust you will return. Yeah. Repent. Believe in the gospel. And so it's a sober time mm -hmm. uh, to take stock and say, Lord, what do you want from me in my life now? How might I spend eternity with you? Uh, we think of Mother Angelica as well. Uh, this March uh, will be uh, the anniversary of her passing, seventh anniversary, Easter, about seven years ago. And then, of course, next month, it's her 100th birthday. And so we think of our foundress, and she epitomizes what we are as EW10 Media Missionaries. She was the premier evangelist. Yeah of the 20th and going into the 21st century. Uh, she, that was central to the ministry, central to this network. And so I think in honor of her, I'm, I'm asking everybody watching this, I'm sure there are many media missionaries watching, but if you're not a media missionary, honor, bless Mother Angelica. She would have you to be, I believe, a missionary that not, not only consumes EWTN, but wants to share EWTN. And that's what we do. We equip you to do that with printed materials, spring highlights, a starter pack, wonderful materials, uh, pieces of artwork, posters, especially for the season of Lent. Um, and uh, so you can get all those things if you join us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mother said, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to fail. Mother said, I'm not afraid to fail, but I am afraid that when I die, the Lord might say to me, Angelica, see, look what you could have done if you trusted me more. That's what we need to be saying. And, and there's one thing that we can all agree upon, that evangelization, missionary work, and Mother had all that, is at the heart of the gospel. It's our chief identity as Christian people, and it is our calling. So I ask that they would join us, and then tomorrow evening we can have a webinar. So you can join the webinar as well, learn more about the media missionaries. But you've got to call us at 205-795-5771 and EWTNmissionaries.com. I want you to join. We want you to be a part of this. Well, EW10Missionaries at EWTN.com. The website is EW10Missionaries.com. Oh, is that right? It okay. is. Okay. <laughs> they also have at EW10.com. Well, either one, try both okay. of those. Right. EW10Missionaries.com, it should be. Well, and, you know, two questions. Yeah. One, how much does it cost to be a media missionary? Your whole life. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, everything is free. All yeah. the resources right. are there. So Electronically, we send them. We send them to you. You're going to be totally equipped. You have an office that's going to work with you. And if someone is uh, homebound, right. can I, they, are they excluded? There's three Ps. The first one is prayer. 
an yeah. accessory print. We just had a woman that joined. She said, I am homebound. I can't do the electronic thing. I can't go out. But I want to be in a concerted effort of prayer with other people. We yep. have over 15,000 people praying for the network. And then if you can go in the realm of parish ministry to, to share the word or public ministry, we will outfit you to do that. But you got to register. You need to join us tonight. Yep. We're, we're waiting for your call. And my confusion was that the email address is ewtnmissionaries at yeah. ewtn.com. Yeah, that's a different one. You did this that's to me before. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm old. I don't <laughs> understand these for the computers. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. And we'll be back with our guest uh, for tonight. So please stay with us. Welcome back. If you've been looking around the Christian landscape lately, you've probably seen a lot of confusing theology, a wide variety of biblical interpretations, and a lot of confusion that stems from ultimately this doctrine of sola scriptura. Uh, that means using the Bible alone. That's all you go to is the Bible. But that is one of the hallmark teachings of many evangelical Protestant churches. Our guest tonight will show us the importance of accountability when it comes to interpreting the Bible and that a magisterial type framework and an appeal to how the church has in traditionally interpreted a passage of scripture goes a long way to avoiding some of the modern world's worst crimes and vices, some of which are done in the name of scripture. Like you to welcome filmmaker, radio host, and author of a book called Twisted Unto Destruction, How Bible Alone Theology Made the World a Worse Place. Please welcome Mr. Don Johnson. Don, welcome. Thank you, Father. Good to have you here nice with to be us. Here. Thank you for writing this book. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. You are yourself, you were raised in a community, a church community that was Bible alone, yes. correct? That was, that's your background. Absolutely. Yeah, we were saturated in Scripture growing mm -hmm. up. I memorized thousands of Bible verses. We went to Bible schools. We went to Bible studies. We went to Bible camp. I went to a Bible college. Do you, re do you resent or look back on learning so much of the Bible? Do you look at that as a bad thing? Yeah, not in the least. In, in fact, it was a huge blessing. I mean, I'm, I'm so thankful, honestly. Yes for my upbringing exactly. uh, and it's and it's lacking. I see it lacking. You know, I teach I teach uh, high school students and, I, <laughs> you know, I reference, you know, well, this Bible story here and they're just, you know, glazed over even in Christian schools they are glazed over. Mm -hmm. So I uh, know I'm absolutely very thankful for my yeah. evangelical Bible centered upbringing. And, and yet you're critical of the position that you have the Bible alone. 
does this mean also that you look at some scriptures maybe not being inspired? That's not God's word? Yeah, no, of course. No, not. It's, it's all inspired. It's infallible. Okay. You know, it's all true. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, we, we so it's have, not the highest, a question I have the highest view of scripture. Yeah. 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 It's not saying that, well, you know, we're not going to use the Bible alone. So some of the Bible is right. not useful. That's not what you're saying at all. Is no. It? In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, you, what, what happens when you do use the Bible alone, and I can attest to this growing up, is that you either gloss over certain passages, you just read right past them. <laughs> you don't think about them very much, or you go to great pains to take certain scriptures that appear to say something else and you twist them to make them say something else. So there is a lot of that. If, if you only have the Bible, yeah. uh, that's what you end up doing. You Can actually you have give to have an a example of that though? You know, where well, somebody you think about, I mean, you it. think about anybody who's had any experience in, in Protestant circles at all, or even attended a small group Bible study, right? Whether it's Catholic or not, you go to a small group Bible study, you read a passage, you go around the circle, you get different interpretations of really any passage. I've never been to a Bible study where everybody agreed on mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. Well, within the Sola Scriptura movement, right, within that understanding, there simply is no way to come to a conclusion about any of those. So it could be as something as simple as, um, you know, wine. What kind of wine did Jesus make at the wedding feast? Grape juice. Grape juice. Now, you laugh at that. I was taught that growing up, that it wasn't fermented. It was like Welch's. Okay, now I look back. That's one of the funnier ones. I mean, you know, is it a big deal? But that's how they interpreted it. And, and you know, I kind of laugh at that now. But you could take any passage like that and make it really say anything you want. And that's, that can have really bad consequences. Yeah, because it would be odd for Jesus to change water into oinos, wine, while at the same time, St. Paul warning us against being drunk on oinos, wine. I mean, you, would, you would think juice, that, Father. You would yeah. think that, but um, you just obviously haven't spent enough time around yeah. <laughs> really, good, really good Bible study leaders. <laughs> but th this issue of the many interpretations was something that was noted early in the Reformation. You know, Martin Luther began the Revel Reformation and also uh, at the same time as Huldreich Zwingli from Switzerland in 1517. In 1524, you quote uh, a Dutch philosopher named Erasmus, good friend of St. Thomas More, in fact. And Erasmus wrote, what am I to do when many persons allege different interpretations, each one of whom swears to have the Holy Spirit? Because that was part of the issue that yeah. the Holy Spirit will guide you and he will direct you what to believe this if is, you use the Bible alone. This is a, well, this is a common fallback, right? When you say, well, what do we do about all these interpretations that God just gave us the Bible? They say, well, not just the Bible, he also gave us the Holy Spirit so that it ensures that we have the right interpretation. Of course, again, and this was as far back as Luther, because almost immediately after yes. Luther's movement, people started having, even among his closest circle, mm -hmm. having contrary uh, interpretations. And so what was the fallback? Well, the Holy Spirit is to guide us. Well, as Erasmus asked, what am I supposed to say when everybody says they have the Holy Spirit? It's a good question. Yeah, uh, well, Luther 
Luther himself, and uh, he wrote a letter to the Christians of Antwerp in, um, uh, I think it's in Holland now, uh, or, yeah, no, it's in Belgium. And um, he, he wrote to them saying, this one will not hear a baptism. That one denies the sacrament. Another puts a world between this and the last day. Some teach that Christ is not God. Some say this, some say that. There are about as many sects and creeds as there are heads. No yokel is so rude, but when he has dreams and fancies, he thinks himself inspired by the Holy Ghost and must be a prophet. Yeah. That was Luther. That's Luther, right. Writing that. And, you know, he had also held the principle of sola scriptura. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand, I think, that Luther, it wasn't like he was reading through the Bible one day and came up with sola scriptura, like, oh, there it is, right? Yeah. He, he was in a doctrinal dispute with the church, and when they said, no, we're not going to succumb, he had to have some authority. So that, I mean, that's where sola scriptura came from. He's like, oh, well, I'm going with the authority of the Bible. But I don't think he really thought that through, honestly. Like, he wasn't mm -hmm. thinking that, oh, I'm unleashing this doctrinal chaos, which he did almost immediately. He seemed almost surprised, right, that the yokels had so many interpretations. Well, what else are they going to do? I mean, they're reading the same Bible as he is, but they're coming to a different interpretation based on his principles. Uh, he opened the door. I, I, you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt, I think he seemed genuinely surprised uh, that not everybody agreed with him when they read the Bible alone. Yeah. And, you know, we've had uh, Dr. Ben Weicker on here. He and uh, Scott Hahn wrote a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, it's, it's not an easy book um, because it really goes into the, the depth of the history. But they point out that this idea of using the Bible alone didn't begin until the 1300s, between 1325 and 1350, Marsilius of Padua, not a name well known, um, uh, and uh, 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 William of Ockham, people know about his razor, but the rest of his stuff they don't know. Uh, but those two came up with this principle of sola scriptura. And Weicker and Hahn, in their book, Politicizing the Bible, point out the background. And Luther's yeah. teachers had been followers of William of Ockham. Uh, that was the dominant philosophy where he went to school at Erfurt and other places. Right, yeah, I think the, the medieval philosophical background is intensely important, yep. right? Again, yep. it's, not, it's not like he was suddenly discovering something new that, you know, the church had abandoned in the first century. So, no, there was some philosophy going on, some politics going on, uh, he, and some doctrinal disputes. Well, here's the, other, here's the thing that I think is key, though. For many Christians who do believe in the Bible alone, that principle, you know, that you use the Bible alone, that is in the Bible, isn't it? <laughs> well, no, I wouldn't say so. No, no, <laughs> that, can, that's, can't find that in the, Bible. That's no. the inherent problem, yeah. that you have to go outside the Bible to Occam, Marsilius of Padua, 
and Luther to have the principle of the Bible alone, but it, you, it's not in the Bible. Well, and it's so just, how can you use Bible alone when the very principle is not biblical? Yeah, I think what, what people need to understand is when they say, you know, the, let the Bible speak or the Bible speaks for itself or the Bible alone, what you are saying is I'm going to trust my personal interpretation. The, the Bible does not speak for itself. No texts do. It's impossible for a text to speak for itself. Any act of reading is simultaneously an act of interpreting. That's just what it is. So you pick up my book and read it, you are interpreting words that I wrote down on the page. The book mm -hmm. doesn't speak for itself, though you interpret it. Now, you may interpret it in a way that I didn't intend. <laughs> and that's just the nature of books and writing, right? Um, and that's all well and good. I mean, I'm alive. I can come and we can chat about it and I can say, well, maybe I wrote that wrong, but that's not what I intended. But there's some real dangers when this is your moral guidebook and I get to make up whatever I want and you don't have, I mean, as little of, a, of as an authority as I am as the author of the book. I mean, if you've got the Bible alone, you don't have even the author, really. Like, it's, you can say I've got the Holy Spirit, but we've already showed that that doesn't really work. So it is just you making up whatever you want to make up, essentially. And uh, I think it's also worth noting that the Bible itself says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, hold on to the traditions I left you, whether by word, or by letter. St. Paul recognizes the traditions not only there, but also in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 11, and uh, also later on in the same chapter. And he talks about the role of the tradition, not any tradition that came along, like Christmas trees, that's, that's a late tradition, right. but the traditions going back to the apostles. That's what's authoritative. Yeah, and I think really the, the rubber hits the road. I mean, all, what are all Paul's letters for? To combat immorality, right? Like, I mean, he's, that, and that's what got me to write the book. Um, I mean, we've all sort of, I think if you watch EWTN, you're probably somewhat familiar with the problems of, of doctrinal chaos and the denominations and the various Protestant sects that arose from uh, the Reformation. But what even caused Luther the biggest heartache, I would say, was the rise in immorality from his yeah. Protestant followers. That was, in fact, uh, you had a quote from Luther in which he himself said that, and I'll read it, we now see the people becoming more infamous, more avaricious, more merciless, more unchaste, and in every way worse than they are under the papacy. Yeah. That was Luther saying that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if, if the word of God is your basis for morality, right? I mean, if God is the basis of good, which he is, but then if you have only the Bible, so that's your basis for right and wrong, and you can interpret the Bible however you want, the morality that results is going to be not only doctrinal chaos, but moral chaos, a moral relativism that's not just relativism in the sense that, okay, do whatever you want, but relativism that is now backed up by a divine mandate. Yeah. And then we've got some real problems. So you're committing sin now 
but not just committing sin, but committing sin because Scripture tells me to do it. You, you bring up something um, in your book that uh, I've talked about this uh, uh, on my program a number of times, but the Bible was used both to condemn slavery in this country as well as to support it. Yeah. And the Southern Baptist Convention started in 1847 over a missionary who owned slaves. Yeah, that's right. The only reason we have a Southern Baptist or a Southern Presbyterian or a Southern any denomination. Southern Methodist. Yeah, is because they split over slavery. Yep. And yeah, I tell that story in the book that when the first slaves were dropped off here in America, I mean, people were all Christians here for the most part, right? And they had some trepidation, rightly so, like should we really be buying and selling people? And, but, and the Catholic Church, by the way, had condemned it from the early ages of colonization, so the church was quite clear from, from early on. Well, even, even earlier, uh, back in 800, uh, the uh, Pope had ordered anybody holding slaves on the island of Sardinia to set them free, and the bishops of England had worked to get slavery abolished in the 11th century. So it, the church was against it. And in the 1400s, uh, Martin V in 1525, and you mentioned Eugene the uh, Fourth, I think it's the fourth. Uh, in uh, 1435, 36, yeah. uh, and on and on. Yeah. Uh, Paul the Third and. Uh, 1536, uh, you know, Urban VIII, Benedict XIV, Pius VII, uh, Greg, Gregory XVI in 1839. It was just constant teaching that it was wrong. Catholics disobeyed it. <laughs> they did, yes. Just like Catholics disobey the excommunication on abortion. Yeah. But there was an automatic excommunication with slavery. There were certain uh, parts of the New World where the local government banned the publication of papal documents so that they, because right. they were so anti-slavery. So yes, we had Catholic slave traders, of course, and sinners, but the Protestants in the New, uh, New England, they didn't care about that. I mean, they weren't Catholics for the no, most part. No, no. So they went to their Bible to find an answer. And what they discovered was a couple of different things. <laughs> Discovered, I say that in quotes. They didn't really discover, but they used scripture to not condemn slavery. Some did, but many used scripture to support it and I think embed it. So at first they would argue that, well, Africans aren't fully human. So when yeah. Jesus says, love your neighbor in the same way that the Samaritans, right? Well, who is my neighbor? They said, mm -hmm. well, we don't need to treat Africans as fellow neighbors because they're not really human. So when God says love one another, they're not one of the other. So they're more like animals, we don't need to love them. That, that was one approach. Yeah, and by the way, an approach that stayed all the way through Charles Darwin. He yes. said the same thing. Absolutely. Africans are subhuman species. So there was that, not everybody bought that. Uh, people like Cotton, Cotton Mather said, no, these are our fellow human beings, we need to evangelize them but yet they still didn't want to free them. They were making too much money on this. So he used 
going back to medieval philosophy, a little bit of a split between body and soul, and a little bit of dualism, he said, well, we should work to save their souls, but we can leave their bodies in chains. In fact, it might be good for them to leave their bodies in chains so that they can come over here and become evangelized and we can save their souls. So he actually started a society for the propagation of Negroes and these kind of organizations. And the, um, that worked to some extent to like Christianize slaveholding. In fact, they got the laws of certain uh, states in New England and even England itself, they got the laws because you couldn't enslave a fellow Christian that was against the law. They actually got baptismal vows changed and the laws changed so that you could uh, enslave a fellow believer in an attempt to evangelize the souls of slaves while still leaving them in slavery. So you'd actually have to take a vow if you want. I mean, it, they didn't have much success in the early days. You can read writings actually from, from slaves saying, this is, this is ridiculous that you would come to me with the teachings of Jesus. That said, um, that wasn't the only approach. They also used uh, the curse of Ham was a very popular passage. I mean, throughout, I mean, that's been used in the last 20 years in America. Sure. But the idea there is that um, after the flood, we hear the story of Noah going into his tent and his son uh, sins against him in some way. And this, the curse of Ham then was interpreted for, for many years still in some cases today as Ham is the Africans. He is the dark skinned uh, race that ended up in Africa and that as such, this is how they interpreted the Bible, all Africans were cursed by God and should be in slavery. And that curse of Ham passage had a long and ignominious history in America. I mean, you can, you can read, you can hear radio messages on that from the 1970s still referencing that in the segregation battles. Even though Ham's descendants included the Canaanites who were Caucasian. I mean, I'm not saying it's reasonable. Yes, <laughs> I'm yes. saying how they used it. Goofy, yeah, it's all get out. Yeah, I want to quote from Presbyterian minister uh, Henry J. Van Dyke. He wrote a sermon called "The Character and Influence of Abolitionism" in 1860, just before the Civil War, and he said in that sermon, "When the abolitionist tells me that slave." Holding is sin. In the simplicity of my faith in the Holy Scriptures, I point him to this sacred record and tell him in all candor, as my text does, that his teaching blasphemes the name of God and his doctrine. That was, when you hear about sermons like that, that using the Bible alone to defend slavery, while abolitionists we're saying it's against, the Bible's against slavery. And they, and as you mentioned, church is split. The Campbellites split into Christian church and Disciples of Christ and all these other groups split north and south. Uh, Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists yeah. and all the other denominations. The, the Bible alone could not stop that issue from leading to a war well, not only could it not stop it, I think the, the Civil War really illustrates some of the dangers of Sola Scriptura because by embedding, in those early days in the 1600s, by embedding slavery into America as a divine mandate, as something that God intends, when, it's one thing to, to have a, a, a thing that you do, right? A habit or even a vice. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to say that God wills it, right? I mean, we understand 
that people do things, right? <laughs> it's another when they think that God is behind it. I mean, we all can think back to certain terrorist actions in the history of the world that where people have done things in the name of God. And we say, well, why do they do that? Because God wills it. When you put that divine mandate on something, now we've got a whole different ballgame. And good historians, Protestant and Catholic, uh, have mentioned, have shown very clearly, I think, that by embedding slavery and an institutional racism in America as a divine mandate, it made it much, much harder to root out of American culture, yes. and it made that fight much more dramatic. So you did have sort of a holy war. Mark Knoll, a very good Protestant historian, has wrote a really good book called The, the Civil War as a Theological Crisis. Yes. And he sees it as, as not, maybe not mainly, but heavily influenced by pastors on both sides. If you didn't have so many pastors in the South and pastors in the North, I mean, the abolitionist movement is also in the North and in the UK, very much driven by Bible-centered, right, right uh, theology. Um, fighting, thinking that, listen, I'm, I'm going to war. I quote both sides in the book. I'm going to war on behalf of God, and I'm going to war on behalf of God. Well, <laughs> that, what are you going to do, right? How are you going to uh, figure that out in a sola scriptura context? Right. You simply can't. Yeah, but I want to quote from Mark Knoll in his book, The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. The political standoff that led to the Civil War was matched by an interpretive standoff. No common meaning could be discovered in the Bible, which almost everyone in the United States professed to honor and which was without a rival the most widely read text of any kind in the whole country. It had, you know, you see um, uh, Billy Graham's son still staying on, radio, on TV and commercials that the Bible is the most popular book in yeah. the world. And it was then, too. But yeah. it still divided people. I want to move on to a little bit more contemporary issues because you go on not only through an issue like slavery that actually led to more people being killed in four years of civil war than in 250 years of the Crusades. Yeah. It's, it's horrible. But now we see this sola scriptura even affecting issues on the, the, the top, hot topic issue of gender in the modern world. And I know you've done a lot of work on this issue. I have been working heavily the last couple of years on the transgender issue. I'm a father of uh, four kids, three teenage-ish girls, and it is a hard time to be a teenage girl. Um, as you know, if you have any, you know the transgender issue is just slamming teenage girls. And it is, I'll just, I'll just summarize my findings on that father. <laughs> it is a, a demonic attack on the human person, on the family. It's as dark as a movement as you're gonna find in the country right now. Let me just summarize it that way. We need to put an end to this. This is killing people, it's damaging people permanently, it's destroying lives. That said, okay, and, and just as an example, in 2015, this really exploded uh, among social media, among teenage girls. Mm -hmm. By 2016, the Washington Post was, um, had an article by a, tr uh, a bisexual transgender supporting Christian with the headline, uh, what does the Bible say about transgenderism? 
you know, nothing or something to that effect. It was like, well, the Bible, the Bible supports transgenderism. And that's the kind of thing that always happens in these issues. So with the, I go through in the book uh, much of the sexual revolution, starting with the contraception, the big battle at the beginning of the 20th century over contraception, moving through uh, gay rights, uh, women's uh, the feminist movement up to transgenderism, and what's coming next, transhumanism, uh, pedophilia, all of these things. Well, they all have exactly the same story arc, to put it in Hollywood terms. It starts out that every Christian in the world says, well, that's wrong, you know, that's evil. Contraception was the most unified issue in all of Christendom as far as being rejected. Martin Luther. Martin, everybody. Everybody. Up until, up until 1930, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> less than 100 years ago, the whole Christian world believed contraception was a grave evil. By the time I w was a kid in the 1970s, I didn't even know that you could be against contraception. I'd never even heard of that. Well, it took me until the two, well, I was in my 30s before I realized that the Catholic Church was still against it. So that whole had flipped on its head. Now, now Christianity, largely, with the one exception of the Catholic Church, is pro-contraception. Well, how did that arc go? And at the beginning, they said, no, this is immoral. Same thing as, as they did with all the other issues. And then they say, oh, well, does the Bible really say you know, does the Bible really talk about this? Same thing with slavery. Does, well, does really, were we talking about slaves here? Um, no, the Bible's silent on it. To then, oh, well, the Bible's maybe not silent on it. Actually, I think the Bible supports it. So now you can, for example, drive down a street in Pasadena and see a big transgender flag hanging out of a, a united church that says God's pronouns are they, them. Like God is transgender now, right? And you see a big push be for a, a pro-transgender uh, approach based on scripture. In fact, you can find very sophisticated um, arguments from Genesis 1. I mean, you could just Google, I mean, don't Google it, but you could just Google it and find very sophisticated theological arguments based on Genesis 1 on why gender is a spectrum and that when God says male and female, he doesn't mean male and female only, he means a broad spectrum, right? And so you, and they're using, they're actually quite sophisticated at their mm -hmm. interpretation of Genesis 1, if I'm being honest. I mean, they go to great detail about why this doesn't mean what you think it means. And if you only have the Bible, this is the thing, if you only have Sola Scripture and you don't have the church saying, no, that's not how we interpret that, there's no way really to refute them. I mean, there's really no authoritative stance. And so you end up with, for example, I had a, a nice conversation not that long ago with a friend of mine a Christian mom, you know, with kids like me, teenage kids, and, um, you know, hadn't really been researching the topic like I had, but one of her daughter's friends had uh, started transitioning, right, changed the pronouns and all yeah, that stuff. Right. And she came to me just sort of offhandedly, not knowing the project that I had been working on, and she said, you know, I just didn't really realize there was so many genders, and it just, you know, started to make a lot of sense to me that she had read some Christian book, and I stopped her right there. You know, I'm like, whoa, 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 what have you been reading? You know, like, hold on. Yeah. Well, she, she honestly, like, initially, she was opposed to it, rightly so. Like, that just seems yeah. wrong. But now she's, oh, I mean, the Christians are supportive. I guess this is the loving thing to do. One yeah. of the other, another most misinterpreted passages in the scripture, by the right. way, yeah. love your neighbor. So what does that mean? Yeah. Um, and she had now been started to move towards the idea that to be a good Christian is to support this transgender movement. Yeah. And this is something that you need more than scripture to be able to deal with this. The magisterium and the tradition are there to give us support and thought, real thought, about how to work through these questions. I'm afraid we have to take a break, 
Uh, but we will be back, and we want to get some of your questions and comments, so please stay with us. Welcome back. And just want to remind you that I am planning to lead a pilgrimage to Poland. Uh, that'll be May 8th to 18th. Uh, if you want more information about that, go to MateoTravel.com. Mateo's M-A-T-T-E-O. MateoTravel.com. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Poland is a wonderful place to go. And hopefully you'll enjoy the, uh, the various sites uh, concerning a lot of the Polish heroic saints that were just were wonderful, wonderful people. Also, the book that we're discussing is called Twisted Unto Destruction, How Bible Alone Theology Made the World a Worse Place. Uh, this is by Don Johnson, and it is available at EWTNRC.com. EWTNRC.com, which is item number 72756. All right. You ready for some questions? Sure. Let's start off with Mike in Pennsylvania. Mike, what can we do for you? Uh, good evening, Father Mitch and Mr. Johnson. Uh, my question is, either one you can answer, is do you think the Catholic Church preferred CCD catechetical instruction based on Christian principles as opposed to biblical instruction to Catholics because of Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the resulting splintering of Protestant sects. I remember being in a 1980s Catholic Renew group, and there was an aversion to handling scriptures. The word was, this is for priests only. But this has changed in the 21st century with media, the Internet, and people like Scott Hahn. And lastly, did Sola Scriptura, Sola Scriptura lead to the Protestant belief in private judgment? Okay. Um, a lot of good stuff there. Let me start with the last one, and I may have you help me on the rest. You know more Catholic history than I do. Uh, I mean, Sola Scriptura is private judgment. So I think that's <laughs> like it's, it's an individualized um, you and your Bible, you know, it's you and Jesus. It's, it's a very atomized faith in the sense that it comes, it's you <laughs> and your Bible, you and Jesus. Uh, there's very low ecclesiology in, in the Protestant world because of this. And so, um, yeah, the whole individual, you know, it fit really well with the sort of the American, you know, individual thing. It's, it's a very Protestant notion. Uh, to the CCD and, and, and whether we use scripture, and uh, I may refer to you more. I mean, in my study of the, in my study, I'm a new Catholic, so I'm still very new, 2015, converted to the church. But in my study of just American history in the 20th century and how the Catholic church has dealt with it, I think where the Catholic church has run into trouble, it seems to me, as where 
is where they have taken a Protestant approach to things, <laughs> where they have um, allowed you know, private judgment or they have gotten rid of scripture. I mean, Scott Hahn, uh, as a convert, I mean, he, he has been instrumental in getting us um, to focus on the Bible, but how he does that is just to point us to the church itself. I mean, the, the church documents, I, don't, I mean, I know that 60s and 70s CCD was one thing, but I mean, when I, as a convert, when I started reading the church documents, any church document, I found them to be, one, very scripture saturated. I mean, they're always referencing scripture, but just so deep and, and just fantastic that you had this interpretive tool that you could just look like the catechism, for example. I mean, what an incredible document this is. Um, you know, even documents that sort of get a bad rap, you know, like, oh, this, this papal bull or whatever, or this Vatican document just seems like, but I'm, I always read them, I'm like, these are really, really good. Coming from a place where I only had the Bible, mm -hmm. to have this extra interpretive uh, authority, I have just found so uh, beneficial and comforting mm -hmm. um, and something that we just really need to, I don't see them as, a, as opposed at all or like, do we have to do scripture? Or, they, they definitely go together. As a matter of fact, you sound like a youngster there, Mike, but we old guys remember the old days. Back in 58, when I was in Catholic grammar school, we learned the catechism, and I did this recently with uh, a, a, an audience uh, where I was speaking in um, uh, another city down in Mobile, Alabama, this past weekend. I said to the older folks, who made me? And all the older folks knew from the catechism, God made me. Why did God make me? They, we memorized the catechism. That's true. But we also studied scripture. We had Bibles. Now, the sisters would not let us keep Bibles in our desks, not because they were against the Bible, but they were against milk being spilled all over them a likely thing to happen during lunch, as it happened with the other books. So they, we, they had them in a cabinet, and they would bring them out for us to read. But we, we didn't uh, read. Uh, uh, we, we read the Bible, just didn't keep them on our desks, because they were holy. And, and the sister even told us as she passed out the Bibles, if you drop it, pick it up and kiss it to show respect. It's the Word of God and you always respect it, it's holy. So we did read scripture, and in high school we had Bible classes, and that was in the 60s for me. Um, so that, that was going on early. Earlier than that, there hadn't been much Bible class, not much. Uh, the, the sisters told us that they were trying to get us to read more scripture. But you need the catechism and scripture. You need to read them both. And it's important, I think, to note, Catholics didn't invent the idea of a catechism. Luther did. The first catechism was written by Martin Luther because he was having trouble with everybody interpreting the scriptures. So he wrote a, a little catechism and the bigger catechism. And then St. Peter Canisius, one of the early Jesuits, wrote the first Catholic catechism, a little one and a bigger one. And then after Trent, another, uh, an official catechism was written. And then we had in America the Baltimore catechism, 
It was composed in Baltimore for Catholic kids here in English. So, you know, the catechisms are very, very useful to help us learn to think systematically. The Presbyterians have one, the Westminster Catechism. And, you know, they, they needed that also. You have to have a framework with which, within which you understand. And that's one of the things that we need both scripture and the catechism, not one or the other. And even just even on a lesser scale, um, you notice that in, in Protestant circles in America, if you want to join any particular group, say work at a church or a Christian school, or you're, they're not gonna just say, do you believe the Bible? They're going to present you a statement of faith that they have an extra biblical document that they have said, this is what we believe, do you believe this? <laughs> so it's not like you just have the Bible alone, even in Protestant circles. You, right. have the, you don't That's have, right. you have a, a statement, a doctrinal statement that interprets the text in a particular way, mm -hmm. and you have to sign off on that if you want to do whatever it is you want to do, join, be a member. So it, it, it's just, practically speaking, there Though, is no such thing. And as there are some denominations that don't have doctrinal creeds or statements. Uh, they, 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 they oppose it, that they exist, but others do. So this is also part of the reality. We have another caller. Hello, Michael in New Jersey? Yes, yes. Hi, we, uh, what can we do for you tonight? Hi, is this Father Mitch? It is. Yeah, Father Mitch, first of all, before I present my question, I just want to tell you that I have been watching you for years now. And you are just wonderful. I have learned so much from you and uh, so much from my own spirituality and my own uh, uh, knowledge of, the, of Christianity and Catholicism. But here's a tough question. I mean, okay. I'm an LCSW and I do psychotherapy and not some psychoanalysis. Very few people are really doing that. And I've had a lot of gay men that I've worked with over the years because since the beginning of my training. I've been doing this for like 28 years. And um, so there's a discrepancy between what the Catholic Church says about homosexuality, like the organization called Courage, mm -hmm. which you probably know about. Yes, I've sure. been to a couple sure. of their meetings just to see what they're like. Mm -hmm. And Courage says to the gay man, no, you cannot live this out. You cannot have a partner. Uh, you know, it's a sinful. And... Um, so these men are encouraged to find joy in celibacy and in the support they get from each other. But I went out to coffee with some of these men, and they're not very joyful. So the other thing is the clinical literature, here's my problem. The clinical literature says that, you know, homosexual men should, should find a partner so that they can have a partner and not be, you know, promiscuous just to have their sexual needs met. And uh, that, you know, because men who do not, you know, die younger. So there's a big discrepancy here in, you know, because there's always some spirituality involved with the men that come in for treatment. And none of them have complained about their orientation. So what's my position as a Catholic and a person who, you know, tries to, uh, you know, uh, conduct uh, a halfway decent psychotherapy for these men with these with the contradictions between what the church is saying and what good clinical um, theory is really saying. Um, okay, well, if there is a, I mean, there is a discrepancy and I would have, of course, probably just to be blunt, um, 
not agree with the clinical interpretation of mm -hmm. this. Um, let me start. Let me start with with something that I've been uh, again studying for a couple of years now, pretty in depth. The transgender movement, and something which I might find a little more agreement uh, with the crowd. Um, my starting premise with the transgender movement is there is no such thing as a transgender child. There is no such thing as a transgender person. Uh, there are people that have certain um, conditions, <laughs> emotional problems. Uh, they might be autistic. They might have had sexual trauma in the past. Um, and all of these things have led them to believe or at least claim to have beliefs that are contrary to the nature of reality about who they really are. Mm -hmm. So there is no such thing as a, a boy trapped in a girl's body mm -hmm. or a girl trapped in a, in a boy's body. If you believe those things, it's somewhat similar to being uh, anorexic. If you go to a doctor and say, I think I'm obese, can you staple my stomach? And you're actually 80 pounds. Any good doctor, any good clinician is going to say, no, you are believing something false. I will not continue you down that road. I will offer you cognitive behavioral therapy to line up your false thoughts and ideas with reality. That's what we did traditionally yeah. in this country as therapists, right? Yeah. Now, I apply that also, and I know not everybody does, but I think it's just because they haven't pushed this logically back far enough. The transgender illustration that I just gave applies just as well to gay. There is no such thing as gay people. There are people with inclinations, with desires, with certain beliefs, but there is no such thing as an orientation that makes your identity different than what you were made, okay? That's, that's mm -hmm. not the case. There, there is just human nature. And yes, we can have all sorts of desires that don't line up with what's gonna flourish us, okay? You can have a desire for any sort of things, adultery, theft, any sort of things. That doesn't mean that they are good, doesn't mean that they are healthy. Um, I believe that the psychological industry, the medical industry, the uh, educational industry in this country has basically been flipped upside down. So that now you have, uh, I talked to the parent of a medical school student the other day who said they were examining a cadaver the other day and they couldn't decide if it was a male or a female. Well, if that's, the, if that's happening in our medical schools, I'm not going to a doctor again, right? Like that's, we have to, we have to go back to reality here. And what the church teaches about the human person is reality. And the church teaches that homosexuality is not an identity, it's a disordered desire. It's contrary to the nature of reality. And we just have to be honest about this. I understand that it's a, there's a, you know, pastorally, obviously we love people, we bring them through in the same way that if a 15 year old girl comes to me and says, I think I want to be a boy, I think I'm a boy. I know that there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of hurt, yeah. there's a lot of issues that need to be dealt with, but I'm, not, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna affirm you in that. I gotta pull you the other way, and that's what the church, uh, I think, very accurately tells us to do. I think, Mike, something that may be useful to recall, the uh, American Psychological Association and Psychiatric Associations both removed homosexuality from disorders in the early 1970s. But they, prior to that, there were a lot of papers addressing the issue of disorder. They stopped that in the early 70s without a single paper or research uh, study showing that this is not a disorder. They had shown the disordered elements before and they changed it because of the politics 
of the early 70s, not because they had research that supported their position at all. And I think it's going to be important to go to take a look at some early research. You might take a look at Alexander Lowen in terms of some of the issues of depression and such that are going on and what he meant by that. And take a look at some of that and other earlier studies, if they haven't been expunged, and see what can we do that helps understand the discomfort and the problems, but at the same time, help folks come to a healthier situation so that they are not unhappy, but have a, a, a peacefulness. One thing I'm afraid, though, is that we're out of time. We, we just run out. Thank you so much. Wow. Again, this book is called Twisted Unto Destruction, How Bible Alone Theology Made the World a Worse Place by Don Johnson. You can get it at EWTNRC.com. And I want to thank you for being here with us and bless all of you. May Almighty God bless you and keep you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can bring Don Johnson and the other guests and all the other programs here only because the network is brought to you by you. So please keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. God bless you and thank you.